All right, everybody, welcome back to the Long Lens Podcast. This is the podcast where I answer questions from my YouTube community, and we just talk about filmmaking and YouTube. This is, I believe, episode two of the second season of this podcast, which is pretty rad. And I'm actually recording this in a different location. If this sounds better, this is the reason why. I actually have a special guest on the podcast today, Jeremy Levins. Levison, Jeremy Levison. Yep. Jeremy is a photographer, videographer, and editor based here in the Dallas, Texas area. Jeremy specializes in weddings and commercial projects, and he also is very talented DaVinci Resolve editor and colorist. You give me a little too much credit there. <laughs> uh, Jeremy is also a Micro Four Third shooter, and I met him through my Instagram and YouTube channel. We connected after I moved here to Dallas, and I wanted to talk about gear with him on this episode because we're both gearheads, and we actually are in Jeremy's home studio right now, which is just surrounded by camera gear. My bank account cries a little bit every time <laughs> someone says that something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, Jeremy, thanks for uh, coming on my podcast, and thanks for letting me use your studio and Zoom H6 to record this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it will sound better. But uh, well, it probably will. Like, I say it a lot that like my podcast, like my podcast has been pretty crusty up until this point. I've been using the Zoom H1 to just record all of my audio, and it's always been a joke that like my guests have better audio than I do as the host. So Jeremy, thanks for for coming on my podcast. And I feel like well, the first thing I should probably ask you is just to kind of like give a little bit of a backstory on like how you got your start into, uh, you know, mostly, I know that you're a photographer too, but like the way that like we've connected is because we're both, uh, you know, filmmakers and you've actually done some like pretty good work that's been featured on Kazi's channel, like colorist. Yeah. The colorist. So yeah, just give me like a little bit of a backstory of like how you got your start in filmmaking. Yeah. So actually it was, um, after a six month stint as a photography intern, um, I was working at a cowboy boot in company in uh, Fort Worth and they had an open video position for internships and I was like hey you know I would love to be a part of that um, and so they they kind of let me have that position and then that turned into a full-time job working for them in video then this was right around the time actually that uh, COVID hit which was not fun but it that's how I got my start in video I'd kind of dabbled in YouTube when I was in the Czech Republic for a, a semester abroad oh, wow. and um i it's actually where i started watching your stuff oh wow um so i was using my pentax at the time it wasn't even the k1 it was the k3 and so i was using like a really cheap camera to try and film youtube videos try and film travel videos and i just tried to you know do a bunch of stuff and i was using the on-camera mic so we all know how that sounds <laughs> um but i think ultimately like that led me to to want to take on this video work and I had some experience in editing. And so that's kind of what my internship was, was basically just editing. And then when I first started as uh, you know, full time at the company, COVID was around. So we weren't, you know, meeting in person. And so what we were doing was basically editing a bunch of stuff. And so I was kind of the dedicated editor. And so I think like I got my start by editing with, and then as I was progressing in the career, like at the company, I then started doing more video and working with video. And as we said in my podcast, I first learned, I really first learned how to shoot video on a red. Yeah. And that was like the biggest eye opening to like, this is so much crazier than photography. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. So many moving parts that you have to think about, but it's like, 
there's so much that you can do with video that you can't do with photo. And so that's kind of like where I started to kind of like, that's when I started to kind of switch from photography to videography. Now I still did photography at the time, but it was mostly video. And so then that led me to start taking on freelance work, which then led to purchasing like the, one of the pocket 4ks and then the GH five and, and stuff. So it was kind of that point I had a full-time job. And then a couple years later, I just decided that I didn't want to continue working full-time for companies. And I just decided that it was time to go on my own. And, uh, wow. I mean, that's pretty encouraging. Cause that's, I mean, so you've like basically been in like the video industry for like what, three or four years now. About three. And that's, that's kind of crazy. Cause I mean, I mean, you guys are just like hearing us on this podcast, but I definitely recommend going and checking out some of Jeremy's work. I'll have it all linked in the show notes below, but Jeremy actually does some really good looking stuff. And like, if you looked at my stuff after like three years of my video journey, it looked like crap. So, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty encouraging to like see that like you've been doing this for three years and your stuff already looks so good. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with my training too. I mean, you know, I think that like starting out learning at a company that is going to pay you to basically learn yeah, was really helpful. I, I, I learned what really good quality video looks like. I learned how to light things perfectly, how to make things sound perfect. So basically in my first year of doing video i learned all of the basics while getting paid a full-time salary and so that i think was was what really propelled my career into understanding like hey this is all important stuff which then it allowed i will say it allowed me to buy a bunch of gear because i already had a full-time income so anything i did freelance all the weddings and other stuff that i did freelance wise it all went into gear it all went into exactly like what what you see in my studio like yeah. all of this was purchased through then. And, and so just being in an environment that allows you to learn and that teaches you things when you're first starting out is, is really important. I mean, and it probably pushed you too to like want to yeah. make the best work you could because paycheck was probably riding on the fact that like you needed to make stuff that looked really good. Yeah. I mean, my, my boss literally hired me when he hired me, he said, there are people that are better than you that are applying for this job Yeah, and that have way more experience. Yeah. But the one thing that I don't know and I can't teach is your hustle. Yeah. And so because I hustled, I was able to get that job, even with no experience when it came to video. You know, I had a lot of photo experience. I had a lot of that kind of, you know, still, still art experience. But sure. when it came to moving, I didn't know what I was doing, really. I mean, I, I knew a little bit and I learned. But like, I mean, I told you my first experience with the red, I had no idea how to manually focus. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how to use any of the red tools. And the fact that I was able to get any kind of decent image out of it, I was like, whoa, okay. There's a lot to lot going on here. So yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's that's a pretty encouraging thing. I feel like that kind of like speaks to, you know, if you have the drive to like want to do something, like you can progress in it pretty quickly. And I feel like you're a pretty good example of that. Yeah, you have to want to do it. Yeah. You have to, I, I, I really hate saying this because it's like a cliche <laughs> Kevin Hart thing, but basically yeah. you have to get up every day and when you don't want to do it, do it. Yeah. You have to keep doing it when you don't want to do it. And that's that's something that I've... There have been days since I've started freelance that have been really down. Yeah. And I'll take some of those days off. Sure. Sometimes you need a mental health reset or a mental, you know, mental reset. But yeah. a lot of the times it's like, I don't want to record a video today. But if I don't record it now, I'm not going to get it done. Exactly. It's like you just have to push yourself to do something when you don't want to do it. And that's that's the freelance life. Yeah. Like, 
I can tell you there are days when I wake up and I have a wedding scheduled and I'm like, the Alabama football game's on right now. <laughs> I don't want to miss this game. It's an important game. But yet, I already booked the wedding, so yeah. I have to go. Yeah. And it's like one of those times where it's like, it sounds stupid. It sounds, it sounds little in the grand scheme of things, yeah. but like, I had to show up. Yeah. So your, your first like experience with like a proper like video camera was a red then right yes so then what was your first camera was it this this black magic pocket 4k yes oh wow so you one of the two i have i don't remember which one but okay that's awesome so you started out in your video journey with like a insanely capable video camera because it was cheap yeah i mean i think i bought i bought it new and it was thirteen hundred dollars and it came with a davinci resolve license yeah and that's one of the things that attracted me to it because I wanted to switch to DaVinci at the time. Yeah. Because I was I was really into color grading. So yeah. having a free DaVinci Resolve license and a, a camera that was at the quality caliber that it is and having raw, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm already used to manually focusing because I yeah. use a red. I'm used to shooting with raw. I'm used to the file sizes. So why not? Yeah. And it's crazy. Like I still see like so many like social media campaigns and, and you know, commercials shot on the Blackmagic Pocket 4K because it's like it's such a capable camera. I think up until recently it was a Netflix approved camera. I don't think yeah. it is anymore. At least I can't see it's not on their website as Netflix approved, mm-hmm. but at least up until recently it was Netflix approved. Yeah. And so like a $1300 camera being Netflix approved. That says a lot. I mean, I've seen those for like eight, like 800 bucks on eBay. Which oh, is yeah. crazy. <laughs> oh, no, they're they're crazy used. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's so cheap used and the one downside obviously is no autofocus. So if you need, yeah. if you're a content creator and you need, you know, consistent autofocus, then it, obviously it's not the camera for you. But yeah. because I do a lot of commercial work where I shoot short films or music videos, stuff like that, like I really like the flexibility in post that it, it provides. Yeah. Well, that actually brings me to my next question, which is a lot of the the listeners of this channel or of this podcast, that there's a lot of micro four third shooters that listen to my podcast. And I noticed that like all your cameras, you know, save for the Pentaxes that you have here are micro four thirds. So what's made you stick with the micro four thirds format for such a long time when there has been other cameras that have come out in the recent past that like you could have, you know, upgraded to? Is it just because you already had established with the pocket 4Ks or did you just really like the form factor? I kind of like the under dog story that came with micro four thirds i mean a lot of people think that you need a big sensor in order to compete in today's day and age and mm-hmm. uh, i actually put recently i did a uh interview setup three camera interview setup two pockets and uh the gh6 for a tattoo shop that i was filming a little brand video for and i posted it on i don't know if you know the course full-time filmmaker yeah so i'm i bought their course i'm in their course and i posted on their facebook page three stills from that and i said there were three cameras used two of them were the same camera one was a different camera i was like what do y'all think it was yeah the amount of people that said canon or sony it made me realize to this day no one is going to be able to tell the difference when it comes to social media yeah and the 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 majority of what i'm using my cameras for micro four thirds is still a phenomenal camera system so that was number one number two was i already had a bunch of micro four thirds gear when i bought the pocket i had the viltrox speed booster and some canon lenses so mm-hmm. we used canon lenses at my job so i needed a canon to or ef to micro four thirds adapter yeah so we because we used my camera actually sometimes as b camera mm-hmm. to the red and so i had a bunch of micro four thirds gear and so i mean it's not even that i've stayed in micro four thirds it's just that lumix keeps putting out insane cameras yeah that like 
I don't want to switch. Yeah. I mean, the GH6 packs such a punch in the camera, and it's the image that you can get out of that and the image that you can push. I mean, you saw Kazi push that image a little bit. It's unbelievable that, like, the only reason people won't use it is because of the autofocusing capabilities. And it's like, this is the one of the best, I think, one of the best filmmaking cameras is the GH6. And... I kind of got away from the whole follow the trend, follow the the gear trends, and I thought about what's what's important for what's important to me. Yeah, and it's having all of the video tools that you would have on a cinema camera. I mean, the Pocket 4K has like histogram, focus peaking, shutter angle, all those things that you need to film. It has it all built in. Yeah. Same with the GH6. Yeah. It has it all built in, and a lot of the cameras nowadays do not have those features. And it makes it hard for me to want to go with a kind of camera like that. Like I was using the R6 once, and while the autofocus is great, I could not for the life of me, and maybe I was just stupid, but I could not for the life of me figure out how to put a histogram on. And I could not tell if my camera was, if the camera was exposed well enough or not. Yeah. And it's just, it's stupid things like that. It's just like, you could have all these great features and all these cameras that like might be technically spec better. Like, you know, it has like, you know, like a bigger sensor or whatnot. But like at the end of the day, if it doesn't work properly for you, like, I mean, I remember using Sony cameras back when they were notorious for overheating and it was just a nightmare trying to like film anything longer than like 10 minutes without that little overheating warning come up. That's why I went back to my Panasonic's because it's just like I could run my GH3 or GH4 till the cows come home and it'll never overheat and it'll never like hiccup on anything, which is like, I think something to be said about like the robustness of, you know, Panasonic cameras and, you know, Blackmagic's as well. I think that one of the biggest things that kind of like kept me in the heat Blackmagic ecosystem, because I actually have two Blackmagic's now, is when I was at the company that I was working for, we were using the Blackmagic's, uh, my Blackmagic as a B cam. And there were a couple of times we used it and my boss was like, I almost prefer the Blackmagic to the red. Yeah. And both, I think both of them were in 4K. And it's like the amount of the, the, the incredible image quality you get out of these cameras for such a low price. And then as, I've, as I will say, until I die, if you pair the GH5 with an Atomos Ninja V, Mm-hmm. It takes it up a whole other notch. Yeah. Unfortunately, the HDMI port did break on my GH5, so I can't use it. But it's just one extra accessory that you can buy to make the camera a million times better. And it, like, I, I shot stuff for that company, you know, that we would use with red footage. I shot it with the GH5 and the Atomos, and you would never be able to tell the difference because it's such, it, it's just such an amazing camera. And when you think about it now, you can get one for 800 bucks. Yeah. $800. That's, that's cheap. Yeah. And you're getting not only a robust image, but like not to mention like you're getting IBIS in that camera, which is like almost second to none. Weather sealing. Yeah. Weather sealing. You're getting a great battery system, you know, unlike a lot of the Sonys and Canons that just, you know, run the battery super quickly, like headphone jacks. I mean, you're getting like a PC sync cord. I mean, there's so many things additionally to how robust that that codec that's coming off of it too, which is awesome. I always say it's a budget cinema camera. If yeah. you, if it will, if you pair it with the Atomos Energy V. Yeah. I think it's a it's a budget cinema camera. Yeah. Because the I don't know what happens through the Atomos, but like the image looks amazing out of camera mm-hmm. just in general, but then you add the Atomos and it's like almost like it's a whole different camera. But it almost feels so much better. Yeah. And so if you yeah, you, I mean you talk about the the battery life. That battery life is is really good. I mean yeah. it's still bad, but like it's it's still like better than like some of the other cameras out there. So oh, yeah. 
I had it. I would have it rigged up though to a V mount system, and I could shoot all day on that and power the monitor, power the Atomos and the camera for like six hours straight. That's what's most important when you're out. How many batteries we went through on the Red versus the GH5? We went through one battery, one battery on the GH5, and like three or four batteries on the on the Red. Yeah, and it's just. It just goes to show that cameras at that low of a price point, that that they still pack a punch. I mean, oh yeah, it was 2017. It was shooting 422 10-bit. Yeah, which was like almost unheard of any camera in that price bracket. And a lot of the cameras nowadays, up in that are at least I should say sub two thousand dollars. A lot of the cameras nowadays don't even shoot 4K 60. Like you think about the A7 III, doesn't shoot 4K 60. Neither does the EOS R. Yeah. I mean, the ESR doesn't even shoot 4K for the most part unless you want like a micro four thirds crop. <laughs> I know. And that's that's the thing. It's like everyone's like, oh, what about the crop? And I'm like, what crop? Yeah. There's I, no crop on micro four thirds. It's just it's just a micro four thirds sensor. Just like yeah. if you're shooting super 16, no one's thinking about the crop when you're using those those cook lenses on it. You know, it's like, no, this, this is just a super 16 camera. Those are super 16 lenses. You know what I mean? And when you use the Metabone Speed Booster, it takes it down to basically full frame. And yeah. I mean, like I use you can see I have a. 18 to 35 on that one camera. Well, that is a Mark IV there's lens, but 24 to 70 on that camera. Yeah. All Canon. Yeah. And I use Canon glass. I use, I'm, I'm working on investing in a set of Canon's EF Cine Primes, not Canon Cine Primes. Yeah. That's not an investment. That's <laughs> hanging. For me, it was, it was a lot, also just a lot of the price. Just, yeah. It's so affordable. It's so easy to get into. And yeah. I don't care about autofocus. So they're, 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 I had no qualms about it. Yeah. So it just, it seems like the best fit, just Lumix in general. The amount of stuff that I've put that GH5 through. Well, what red camera were you using on that job that you paired your GH5 with? Scarlet. Oh, wow. Yep. So like you could pair a red Scarlet and a GH5 pretty easily then. If you use the Atomos. If you use the Atomos. Yep. That's good to know. So, and that's that's the thing is like a lot of people are like, I, I, I went to uh, Mexico to DP a shoot for a tequila brand and I used the GH6 and a red Komodo. Matching them? was actually pretty easy i would say their color science is very similar yeah um obviously the komodo has way more dynamic range and mm -hmm. that's why you pay six thousand dollars for a camera is 16 bit i think it's like 16 stops of dynamic range yeah and 16 bit raw so you know there's obviously positives to spending six thousand dollars on a high-end cinema camera sure but just even pairing the gh6 with the komodo was pretty easy and just looking at the how is it was 5.7k apple pro res that i was shooting and i honestly when i got back to it the only reason that i could tell it was the gh5 or gh6 was because of the dynamic range yeah because there's just it was less than the the komodo but otherwise you would not have been able to tell a difference yeah and that's another thing too that like i'll definitely leave a link in the show notes below of this um, episode, but Kazi did a little color grading breakdown of some of your GH6 footage. And like, it's crazy how much you can push and pull from that image. And sometimes I forget that the GH6 can shoot in ProRes just from like an editing standpoint. I know that ProRes is like the most easy to use, you know, codec for like basically any editor that you're on. Like I usually, that's true. Like I transcode like most of my footage into a ProRes file and just, you know, instead of making proxies, I just, I just transfer all of it into like, you know, to, to ProRes HQ or something like that and edit with it. Cause it's just so much quicker. I mean, it just like, it makes me want a GH6 just cause like, I wouldn't have to, like that would just take one step out of my process. And I'm obviously getting all of the bit depth of a ProRes file, which is sick. Yeah. It's, it's funny that that video that you talk about, that was only a 4k file too. I yeah. gave him, I gave him 5.7k 4k 
both in ProRes and then all I ProRes or yeah. all I H.264. Yeah. Because I was like, you know, pick which one you want, see what you you know what you want to use. But yeah. yeah, you really can push and pull a lot of it. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand when it comes to cameras is it's not necessarily about the highest resolution. It's about how far can you push the image? Yeah. Obviously, I will say Sony is, do, is doing a really great job with this. Um, he's had a couple more videos come out about like the FX30 and mm-hmm. the A7R5. And you can do a lot with those cameras. So yeah. I think there are definitely cameras right now coming out that, that, that you can push. But you're also paying, what, $3,500 for the A7R4, yeah. right, A7R5? And while that's, you know, still cheap-ish, Ish, yeah. it's still $3,500. You could get a GH6 and two native micro four-third lenses for that price. Yeah. And use the auto, as you as if we've checked, mm-hmm. the autofocus actually can be used. Yeah. You can use the autofocus. So, yeah. I mean, again, it, it all comes down to they give you all of the tools that every filmmaker needs in such a budget-friendly camera. Yeah, I agree. Well, that actually brings me – I mean, we talked a little bit about autofocus, but we're actually recording this episode the day that the Panasonic S5 Mark II just got announced. My and bank account every, is crying. <laughs> every YouTuber that was flown out to Japan just released their video. And even some people that weren't, some people that just got review units released their video, the embargo drop. And basically the S5 is, or the S5 Mark II is an S5 with phase detection autofocus, which sounds amazing. I used to have the S5 and I loved it. Jeremy would have loved it if it had full size HDMI. But yeah, what are your thoughts on it? And like, does that tempt you to go with full frame, but stick with Panasonic? Well, the answer is yes. Okay. Um, as a photographer myself, uh, we've talked about, I use Pentax for photos and I use the like GH6, GH5 and pocket 4Ks for video. But there's a lot of times that I'm shooting an event and I need to do both photo and video. So that just means I have to bring extra gear to do both. And so it would be really nice if I could like consolidate my system, be just Lumix. Um, and I think that like, because I do weddings, I, I do miss out on the autofocusing capabilities of cameras up until this S5 Mark II release, which let's put it this way. There's two different cameras that they're coming out with the S5 Mark II and the S5 Mark II X. Yeah. And the X basically adds internal ProRes and external raw recording. So that would be the one that I would want to get. So the S5 Mark II that's coming out right now, I'm not going to get. Yeah. Mainly because I want that extra that extra recording because for commercial work I do use X like I do use ProRes and it would I can when I record to the SSD through that camera, I can record higher end ProRes. So yeah. it is tempting Definitely, for sure. But I think as we've talked about on my podcast, it's not always about the best gear or all the newest gear. It's about what fits your workflow. Yeah. And what's going to fit best into my workflow. And I, I think for me, like, it's definitely tempting. But I think also it's like, is the GH6 autofocus good enough to save me from having to spend $2,000? Yeah. Or actually for the X, it's like $2,200, So, Which is still really really good for lumix i feel like that's yeah. pretty that's that's pretty low if you know if you compare it to a lot of the sony cameras that have been released but well but then you also have to add lenses and stuff yeah. so it's like which panasonic is not like they have a better lens lineup now than what they did when i first got the s5 like they had three lenses when i got that camera but now they have an entire prime set and they have you know their their leica branded zooms and stuff so i mean that's and they nice. unlike canon they are allowing third-party lenses yeah, like Sigma. Yeah, yeah. Throwing yeah. shade on Canon there. No, I think that I think that ultimately, like, 
it definitely seems like a really great camera to have and i think that it could be a beast but what i'm what i'm concerned the most about is number one the crop at 4k 60 yeah that sucks i don't know why they couldn't get rid of that yeah yeah it has phase detect but i've noticed from a lot of autofocusing systems even canon and sony it's not foolproof yeah and i'm just worried that it's going to if i'm tracking a bride coming down the aisle it's gonna lock onto somebody else's face yeah and that's something the only review that i watched was from patrick tomaso on that camera and that's something that he said that like even because he uses the a7 IV and the fx30 the s5 mark ii is good but it's still not even as good as those two cameras it's a good introduction yeah it's a good introduction. You can see with the way that they're going, though, that there's probably going to be a release of future, like a, a Mark II version of other flagship cameras coming out. Like you can just see that this is the way that they're going because as their tagline was, this is the new phase. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm assuming probably in the next year we'll see like an S1H Mark II released, probably going to target the A7S three people. The S5 Mark II, other than the face detect, is that it does continue to still have dual native ISO. Yeah. And that's something that, like, I, I think the GH6 technically has is it has it. it. It doesn't say that it does, but if you look at the noise print when you have put a lens cap on, and you put a look at the noise print of the 250 ISO and the 2000 ISO, mm-hmm. they're very similar. Oh, so wow. I actually think there is a, like a secret dual native ISO at 2000. Yeah. The fact that they are keeping that dual native ISO is really important because a, a lot of the times when you're filming wedding receptions, there's a lot of points where you may not, like I use lights for the dance floor, yeah. but there's a lot of points where you may have to go film something else and there are no lights there. So yeah. you need the low light capabilities or when they're walking down the, you know, the sparkler send off. Yeah. I have my eye on it, but I also want to see what they're going to do with their, their current lineup as well if they come out with an uh, s1h mark ii version Mm -hmm. i want to see that comparatively too because like i'm right now i have any i have all the gear that i could need for for weddings and corporate work yeah camera wise and lens almost lens wise and so i think that like as tempting as it is you have to sit down and think okay do i really need this yeah you know i think we've tested the gh6 audio focus well enough that i can tell it it can work yeah so the question becomes is it going to be good enough and i think the only way to to do that is to to keep running tests yeah you know buy like the 12 to 35 and run it on a gimbal at a wedding and see am i still able to get the shots that i need is the autofocus gonna help or hurt yeah i am about to binge watch a bunch of youtube videos on it tonight yeah but i think that like Going back to going going to what you and your channel is dedicated to filming on a budget, mm-hmm. I think that like that's the most important thing is that money can come and go, and when you're in a freelance career, money's not always going to be there. Yeah, and there's a lot of times like right now currently there is a huge shortage of weddings. Yeah, so a lot of the people that I know that are normally booked at this time, or normally have you know weddings very often, they aren't booked. Yeah. So yes, it's tempting, mm-hmm. but can I really afford to spend $2,300 on a camera right now that I'm not going to be able to use for another couple months? Well, I mean, that actually, I mean, that kind of segues us into our, like my last question that I have for you is that like, there's a lot of people that listen to my podcast and even like watch my YouTube channel want to get into making YouTube videos, but a lot of them, they want to do what you're doing freelance video. So I was just wondering if you had any tips on making a freelance career work, getting gigs, booking jobs. That's something that I get asked a lot. And I feel like I can't really speak to it very often because I 
I don't have the experience that like you would have. Yeah, I, I think I think the biggest thing for me is referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you do a good job for somebody or you go above and beyond, break their expectation, they're more likely to refer you. Yeah. You know, if you, I had a I had a wedding client the other day. She said that basically her photographer didn't do as well as she expected. And she was kind of bummed out by that. The venue was horrible. Like mm-hmm. they just dealing with the venue was horrible. And I was the one that saved their wedding day wow. because they were able to look back on their day and they were able to remember it in a very beautiful way. When you exceed expectations, you know, I always try to exceed expectations for all my clients. I try to, I try to do something that I didn't do previously. And so that they want to refer me. They want to yeah. say, Hey, this guy was awesome on our wedding day, or this guy was overprepared for our production. You know, mm-hmm. I bring a cart of gear. With lights, cameras, tripods, stands, everything. I may not use half of it, but it's there. I I think that like referrals are number one. You do a good job, people want to refer you. Yeah. You do a bad job, people want to tell you to stay away. Yeah. So I think doing a good job and going above and beyond is the best way to ensure either a continuation of work with that client or being referred to somebody else. Yeah. So I think that's the number one thing that people have to do more of is work on your relationships with your clients and be a, a joy to be around. That's so that's one thing that I really struggled with was I was not a joy around when I was first starting out. And I think that like you can charge $12,000 a gig mm-hmm. and be a jerk yeah, and still get work. But you can also charge $6,000 and be a joy to, to work with. And you'll get more than more work than that $12,000 videographer. Yeah. Because not only are you a lower price, but people are going to want to bring you back. I can't remember where I heard that. It was like, if you're a joy to work with, even if you don't have as much experience, even if you don't have the portfolio that some of these people do, if you're a joy to work with, people will rather go with you than the person who was a pain. I'm. There's a lot of ways to hit the instagram tiktok and youtube shorts market Mm -hmm. and i think that that is a huge way to get business yeah that's something that i did not do a lot of last year was create and so i'm 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 gonna i've been trying to make like a little challenge to people and it's gonna be a hashtag it's gonna be hashtag create not consume and i think there's a lot of what people need to do is just create that's what we do is we make videos uh, for other people. And so you just have to repurpose that content. And then it's also just cre- adding value. Your YouTube channel is very educational. And that there are two types of content that really work on social media, educational and entertaining. Yeah. If it's one or the other, it's going to do well, or it has the ability to do well. Yeah. And so I'm trying to use Instagram to also provide value to people who are starting out and who were in a position like I was a year ago, starting full-time with no other income. Literally a year ago on January 1st, I had no other jobs. It was just my freelance work. It it was at the point where like, this is, I've got to figure this all out. And so I had a lot of questions. I went through a lot of like developing over the past year and I want to share that knowledge with people. And so I want to educate people, but I want to do it in a way that's also entertaining yeah, or engaging. And there's a, I don't know if you, I don't know how involved you are in Instagram reels or anything, but there is an Instagram audio, real audio that was literally somebody going, everything is content. Everything is content. It's like, that's the case. Everything is content. Like everything that you're doing, anything that you film, anything that you shoot is content. And you have to consistently post that out on social media. 
to get a wider audience. A lot of people want to, a lot of clients and a lot of companies want to work with people who have a social media following. Why? Because they can push that product out to a bunch of people and make more money. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the life of a YouTuber. I mean, the only reason why anyone sends me free stuff or wants to give me money to feature their brand or their product in my videos is because I have an audience behind me. So yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's like, you know, going forward in 2023, like that short form content is what's being pushed so much more. And like, no matter how much I fight it, I know that I'm going to have to start doing that as well if I want to stay relevant. Because I mean, most of my viewership actually comes from search still. And like, a lot of people who are getting discovered on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok are, you know, being pushed because of the algorithm. You know, it's not necessarily like, I think maybe like 2% of my audience actually watches my videos. So it's like everything else comes from people searching and then finding my videos through that, which is like, you know, pretty interesting. So it's like a lot of room for anyone to, you know, grow an audience because my audience isn't really what's giving me the views and giving me like my money, basically. It's just the YouTube algorithm that's pushing it. So the whole, I- the whole idea of social media is to gain exposure, but gain meaningful exposure. Yeah. So it's like I, I, are, I know where my target market is, and I don't want to just have a bunch of blank, like, and like endless supply of followers that don't do anything for me. Yeah, I would rather have a bunch of clients follow me and people that then can tell other people who are going to pay me to do work. I want them to know about me and follow me. At the end of the day, like the whole subscriber follower account, it's just numbers unless you can convert those those followers into like work or, you know, convert them into like, you know, actual fans that are going to like watch your videos. I mean, for me, that's like I have 144,000 subscribers on YouTube, but it's just like doesn't really mean much if most of them aren't going to watch my videos. So that's why like even though I'm, you know, technically like a full-time YouTuber, I'm still chasing the algorithm to like make YouTube push my videos. You know what I mean? I feel like there's there's been there is a a little bit of a war going on between filmmakers and YouTubers. YouTubers are the people who live mostly on YouTube and do whatever they do on YouTube. Yeah. And then there's filmmakers like me, like Andy Axe, Mark Bone, who are bringing a more educational style and real world example of how to use certain gear in the real world. Yeah, like I, one of the biggest things for me is watching Andy Axe use the GH6 they use it in a music video yeah and they use the Nikon Z9 in a music video and then they used like the pocket 6k pro and stuff and it's like watching them use the gear that I want and seeing how it works in a real world environment not just somebody like and not to throw shade at Caleb Pike here because Mm -hmm. I love him and I love what he does but I was watching his review on some lenses Mikey Cinelenses. Yeah. Just what I want to get. And I was just watching it and I was like, it's good technical information, but what's it what what are they like when you actually go film a commercial with it or film a documentary with it? So I hopped over to Andy Axe yeah. where they had a video using it in the real world. And it's like that kind of thing where it's like that's more valuable than just showing me the specs or talking about like and I love Gerald and Dunn. I'm yeah. not again, I'm not trying to throw shade on YouTubers here, but like yeah. I do have a problem with how it's done sometimes. And so like Gerald Undone is great for the specs. Yeah. But he said Micro Four Thirds is dead and the GH6 is horrible. I can't forgive him for something like that because he's never <laughs> – well, he he's not a filmmaker. He doesn't use it 
on set. Yeah. So how does he really know what it's like to use on set? And how does he really know that it, Michael Four Thirds is dead? Because it's yeah. not. You know, someone like Caleb Pike, I think as good as his content is, he's kind of swung on that pendulum to where he's where Matty Apoya is now, to where it's like he's just reviewing stuff. But he's not actually using it in a real world scenario. You and me could be in like the minority of people who are like just thirsty for content by actual filmmakers. You know what I mean? Like it's one thing yes. to, for example, like if someone were to talk about skateboarding because they read up on it and they know exactly like, you know, like where people are supposed to place their feet and how doing a kickflip works. Like you can talk about that all you want and you'll be technically right. But like I skateboard every single day and I know exactly how to do a kickflip, right? Like who are you going to want to listen to more? You know what I mean? Like, no, exactly. Like you're going to want to listen to the person who's actually doing it. I don't want to swing on that pendulum so far to where I become the exact thing that like is frustrating to me right now. And so that's why, like, even if it means like, I don't take for granted that I am a full-time YouTuber right now. Like I'm very thankful and very like, you know, privileged to be in the spot that I am right now. But like, at the same time, I started this because I wanted to be a filmmaker and I wanted to be a cinematographer. I don't ever want to like lose that in exchange for selling people on a product on YouTube. You know what I mean? Like that's not what I started out wanting to do. Like my goal when I was, you know, 22 years old or however long ago it was, was not to get you to click a link in the description. It was, I wanted to be a filmmaker. You know what I mean? What's hard is that people are trying to, trying to also distinguish between being a content creator and just creating content. Yeah. I'm not a content creator. I don't want to be a content creator. I don't want to yeah. be an influencer. I just want to create content and create cool things. Yeah. It's so hard to, to watch YouTube right now. Like I, I find myself scrolling through YouTube for about like five or 10 minutes before I put on Netflix. Cause I'm like, I'm not finding anything that I want. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm trying, what I, what I'm trying to do with a YouTube channel this year is what content do I want to see? If you're making a video and you're like, man, like no one else, like I'm not making it the same way that like everyone else is making it. It's probably not going to do well. Like that's the kind of video that probably will because like a big surge and people regurgitating the exact same information, which I don't think oh is necessarily, gosh. I don't yes. think it's necessarily a bad thing, but yeah. it can be if they're doing it in the exact same way. Like I can't tell you how many times that big video of mine that blew up to like almost 10 yeah. million views. There are so many people that copied me and did almost verbatim the exact same video. I had like three or four people message me and say, Hey, do you mind if I, you know, do my own take on this? A lot of them didn't even like it, Like I think Indie Mogul like ripped off that video mine and like did their own version it was i mean it wasn't exactly the same but, like i see like the way that i transitioned you know like the bad lighting to the good lighting with that snap oh yeah everybody started doing that like there's so many videos of like here's how you make a you know a canon you know like sl2 look you know pro and then they do the snap and it's like if you're just going to do the exact same thing that I do, what's the point? Like my videos already out there and there are, I mean, there are some people that like, you know, their videos did really well when they copied me, but like you got to bring your own flavor or spin to it. You know what I mean? If you're just going to do the exact same thing, that's what I see a lot is that like people will just do the exact same thing that everyone else is doing. I mean, dude, we've probably been talking for, I don't know, like hour and 25 Good minutes. Lord. Yeah. yeah. So like, I probably, talk, I'm sorry. No, dude, like, I feel like this is funny. Cause like, we can both probably talk about this for another like two hours, but my wife's going to get home tonight. I'm going to talk to her about the S5 Mark II, hundred <laughs> percent going back to gear. That's right now. All I need are the cameras that I have. Yeah. And I have four high end cameras or three high end cameras in a GH5. Yeah. Um, I think that's, I think it's important to understand that like you need to learn to be happy with what you have and 
only when it starts hurting your ability to grow, then upgrade. Yeah. Because, like, I push – I still use the GH5, first of all, on every – almost every shoot. I used it as my main camera until I literally – needed the gh6 in order to do things that i wasn't able to do with the gh5 yeah and i think that that's the important thing is it's like use your cameras until you literally cannot grow yeah because of your cameras and then you can upgrade but everybody who upgrades to these like to the newest in cameras and there's this one guy that i know on on instagram he he's like a camera carousel dude like yeah he, he started on the pocket 4k then he went to um canon r5 and he went to the komodo and then he didn't like the, the having two systems so he went to the r5c and then the r5c wasn't good enough for him so he's now on sony fx6 and it's like yeah dude how much money have you spent it, it costs a lot to like switch like systems that many times really and, and like i feel like what you said it definitely is true i used the gh3 for probably a decade maybe a little bit less than a decade like at one point like i was making so many youtube videos that like it missed focus or i was so far away from the camera that i couldn't check focus and i, re- I recorded an entire talking head sequence and i was out of focus the entire time i had to do it all over again i've done that too many times and with like the gh5 yeah and that's like i was like okay I can see the value in getting a camera with good autofocus. YouTube and social media has gotten us into caring more about the specs and being a flex than yeah. it has the real side of cinematography. And I think that that's what we're losing with content creation and YouTube. And I, I realize that you're a YouTuber and I'm sorry. <laughs> but like what we're losing with these people promoting this kind of stuff is the actuality that when you watch a movie, when you watch a movie that's shot on Ari. There is, I don't think there is any RE that is over 4K. So why do you, why, why do you care about 8K Cine Raw from the, from the Canon R5? No one cares about 8K. No. You give a, no one cares. So why are, why is everybody talking about the 8K? Why not instead of, I mean, I would have loved the S5 Mark II instead of having 6K internally, I would have loved it to have 16, 17 stops of dynamic range. Yeah. Why are you giving us higher resolution and not dynamic range? Yeah. Dynamic range is so much more important. People don't understand. I was talking to somebody. Okay. I I keep saying I'm going to stop, but (laughs) I was talking to somebody and we were talking about the differences between 420 and 422. 420 10-bit versus 422 10-bit. There is like zero difference. Yeah. The only reason you would use 422 is you're going to green screen. Yeah. 420 is fine for 97% of stuff. Yeah. And so it's like, it's just this idea that like you literally YouTube has made us want higher resolution better bit depth and not as much care for dynamic range it's almost like throughout the years we've been chasing the new thing you know back in the camcorder days we were chasing the dslr for the shallow depth of field look after we got the shallow depth of field and we only had 1080p we were chasing 4k after we were chasing 4k we were chasing 10 bit after we're chasing 10 bit we're chasing more dynamic range and it's just all of this stuff that like we think is going to just make our images look good have you seen uh, napoleon dynamite yeah do you What's see that shot on 16 mil? That's every like, shot has zero depth of field. It's like, yeah. I think it's probably shot at like F8 almost or something. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know where the term cinematic came from for YouTube. I think it's just a buzzword, but like, well, it's obviously just a buzzword, but how shallow depth of field, slow motion video and smooth video came to mean cinematic. I will never understand. Yeah. It's not cinematic. It's not. It's funny how, and we were talking about this earlier, Yeah, how, how, sharp cameras have gotten yeah when we're chasing the film look yeah we put diffusion filters on our lenses we 
soften things in post. We do all of these things to chase the film aspect. What's going to get us the filmic look? You know, what's going to be like real, like cinema. And yet everything on YouTube is completely the opposite of what real cinema is, what real film is. And I mean, I still shoot, you can see them all right there, all my film gear. I still shoot film photography. I have a, a super eight right there. It's something that for me has been a big, 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 like frustrating point is like just seeing the word cinematic. And I, again, I'm sorry. I know you have some on there, but it's, it's just, it's hard because like, and I'm sure you felt like you're in this position where because you're a YouTuber and you, your income relies on views, you got to use those words. No, it's like, I think that just comes like full circle back to what we were talking about before with like, you're a working professional in this field and when you click on something like that you expect it to mean what it should mean which is like something that looks like it could be in a movie and not necessarily 60 frames per second slow motion coffee montage you know what i mean which is what everybody you know thinks cinematic is and that's yes like that's what i've tried to like steer away from a little bit like i want when i use the word cinematic it is just because that's a high searched word you know like it's search and it's like i'm a youtuber like i have to make sure that like i'm using the verbiage that people are searching for like i want the stuff that i make to still look like it could be in a commercial or a movie like i've never aspired to be like a like a movie cinematographer like i would love to be a commercial cinematographer but not narrative stuff it's never really interests me that much but like whenever i say cinematic i tend to mean that like okay this could be in a commercial or it could be like a social media spot or something like that anyways with all that being said i think that we've covered a lot we've covered kind of where you got your start like the cameras that you use throughout your career, the fact that you have been in this industry for a relatively short amount of time in comparison to probably a lot, and you're doing a lot in this industry, which I think is awesome. And I think it's you know pretty encouraging to, to anyone who's listening to it that like you don't have to spend 12, 15 years like I have to like make it. You can be three years in and be pretty successful at it. I think you have to put away the doubt too. Like there's going to be a ton of people that are saying, oh, you can't make money doing this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you have to put that away and just yeah. say, you know what? If I put if I if I work myself harder than anybody else, I can do it. Instead of going to film school, just get obsessed about what you do. Don't don't watch YouTube videos of what's the best camera. Don't watch any of that kind of stuff. Like if you can't do it on the days that you don't want to do it, then you're not going to do it on the days that you want to do it. Yeah. And so that's what I that's that's I think my biggest advice is just do it on the days you don't want to do it because those are the days that really when I look back on this past year, my first year of freelance videography, it was the days that I didn't want to do things that I remember the most. I don't remember the days that I went and did something that I wanted to do something. It was the times when I didn't want to do something that I did it and that I was like, oh yeah, that was pretty awesome. So Awesome. Well, hey, Jeremy, thanks again for uh, coming on my podcast and let me use your studio and your recording equipment. And Sorry, this it was is so long. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for coming on this podcast, and I'll have to have you on again. I mean, we live 20 minutes away from each other, so I'm sure we'll be working together again soon. Yes. Yeah, cool. yeah. Uh, I was, thank you for having me. It's been fun. It's uh, it's it's cool to, to see that uh, I used to watch your – or still do, but yeah. I started watching your channel, and then now we're sitting yeah. across the couch from each other, so it's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's awesome. It's cool, you know, actually getting to meet some of, like, my fellow – creators and uh, filmmakers in the industry so yeah thanks for listening to this very long episode of the long lens podcast and i'll have links to where you can find jeremy's work in the show notes below 
But anyways, stay tuned for the next episode and I'll see you all next time. Later. Later.